Is that uncomfortable? All right. In 1920 or 1906, <coughs> a uh, African American um, son of a freed slave um, was the assistant to an interim pastor in Topeka, Kansas. William Seymour was his name, and he, uh, under this uh, this white pastor, he started learning about the Book of Acts um, primarily, and got enamored with Acts two. And uh, he started doing some speaking and teaching, and he got invited to a Bible college in Houston, Texas. And he attended and pretty quickly started speaking there. And a lady who was traveling through Texas heard him speak and actually went home to her church in California and talked her elder board into inviting him out for a month to preach a series of, of meetings. And so they invited William Seymour out to California, and he preached a couple times. We're not there yet. Uh, we preached, he preached a couple times, and they, um, uh, after the second service, when they found out that he had ever, he was preaching on being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and he, they found out he had never spoken in tongues before, and so they kicked him out. They thought it was weird that he was teaching something he'd never experienced himself, and so they booted him out of the church. And some of the members of the church who had heard him speak invited him over to his house. Now we're ready. There we go invite him over to his house, and he started teaching Bible studies in this house. And people started just packing this place. Uh, they would have people fill the yards, and he would um, teach to them. And eventually, they packed so many people on the front porch that it actually collapsed. Nobody was hurt, but they realized they had to find a different place. And so they bought a building, or they leased a building at 312 Azusa Street, um, which was a 2,400-square-foot building that was originally a church, and then when the neighborhood got too run down, the church left, and it became a stockyard, um, a warehouse. For a while, it was a tombstone um, showroom, and most recently, before they bought it, it was a uh, stable for horses. And they started doing services in it so quickly that they hadn't cleaned out all the manure, and apparently flies were a major problem um, when they first started doing services here. But they moved into this building on Azusa Street, and they had nightly services, anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people would pack in this little place and have these nightly services. And their entire focus was Acts 2. They almost always preached out of Acts 2 in this church. And from this, this kind of explosion on Azusa Street came um, what we would know of as the Pentecostal denominations, Assemblies of God, Church of God, a lot of them it started immediately out of this um, Azusa Street revival. Some of the leaders would branch off and start um, and start really whole denominations. Then in the 60s, there was kind of another similar outbreak, Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement, which led to what we consider what we call the charismatic movement, um, which was mostly a lot of the more mainline churches kind of jumping on board with some of the more charismatic elements for the Pentecostal movement. And then it happened again in the, in the 80s uh, and into the 90s. They tend to call themselves revivalists, but theologians kind of call them the neo-charismatics um, or new charismatics. And so this movement is, over the last 100 years or so, has become quite a thing. And uh, they now make up about 28% of the church, self-identify as charismatic, the second largest group of Christians behind only Catholics. Um, so, and all of this movement came from a man's fascination with Acts 2, um, which is where we're at tonight. And, and they have, from that day, considered what they do a revival. Um, and the word revival 
is when we go back, we look at something old, and we bring it forward to where we are. This is actually a secular word. It's, uh, it's from the Latin um, re meaning back and viva meaning life or to live. Um, so it means to go back and bring new life uh, and, or relive something. And, what's, uh, and it happens all the time. We have like the Greek uh, re revival architecture in the 18 and 1900s, um, where, or the 17 and 1800s, where we would go back and look at Greek architecture and we would bring it forward and build it new. And what's interesting about most like secular revival movements is we go back and look at the original, but then we build it with newer materials and stuff. We don't restore something old. We actually build new with the, with the influence of the old. And so we had Greek revival architecture. There was the Irish literary revival movement um, where they kind of dug deep into Irish poetry and, and uh, lore and story, and then they would tell new stories following those kind of uh, similar things. Anybody know what the Goodwood revival is? This is kind of weird as I was searching this. It's actually a fashion revival. They, they, they have these like festivals. They're almost like the Renaissance festival, only it's for 30s and 40s fashion. And these people dress up in like 30s and 40s fashion and drive classical cars and get online and look at it. It's really interesting. Like these people get completely decked out um, in 30s and 40s garb and then just get together and have parties. And what's funny is I saw some of the things. They got these really nice modern sound systems blasting music at this 30s and 40s era stuff. When I was uh, studying for this message, I was actually listening to a band called uh, Southern Gospel Revival, um, which is actually uh, kind of fun, really. Uh, and it, it's, they, they dress kind of like Mumford and Sons. Everybody's in suspenders, and they all have beards, and they look like they could be from the early 1900s doing Southern Gospel music, except like the bass player's got these tribal tattoos, you know, down his arm. Like, so it's got this kind of funny modern twist on old stuff, which is interesting. And really, we kind of live in a revival era. Like, the whole retro fascination right now is, uh, is a revival thing. Because what's funny is if you walk into a 50s kitchen that hasn't been touched since the 50s, it's like, oh, gosh, this is so dated. And so you tear it all out, and you rebuild it to look like it was from the 50s, and you call it retro. Like, it's, it's, we, like retro is like the big thing right now. <clears throat> and what's most uh, interesting about all of the revival that the charismatic and Pentecostal movements did is they're going back to a passage that itself is actually a revival. It's actually a passage about people going back to an even older passage. Acts 2 is, there's actually very little in Acts 2 that's original. And we're going to talk about the kind of three major revivals that the, that the apostles are experiencing in Acts 2. Um, that to them, that the imagery is so strong we can't help but look back into what it is actually signifying. Um, so there's three revivals in Acts 2. We're going to do the first one. The first one is the revival of Shavuot. You ready for that? Oh, yeah, I titled my sermon Revival. Um, and it's actually a revival of revival, if I want to be specific. But the revival of Shavuot, this is the Feast of Weeks, <clears throat> or Pentecost. They, they name it the Feast of Weeks because it's 40, it was actually 50 days after Passover, a week of weeks. So seven sevens was 49 days, and it was the next day. And somebody thought the Feast of Weeks was too boring, so they renamed it Pentecost, which is the Greek word for 50, like that's better. So they named it 50 instead of weeks. But this is one of the uh, Shalosh Regalim, um, which is the, the pilgrimage festivals for Jews. So this is, uh, this is one of the times when you're supposed to travel back to Jerusalem for a festival. 
Um, and this kind of really sets the stage for, the, for Pentecost because it says um, that there was devout men from all these nations in Jerusalem at the time. That's because this was a, this was a pilgrimage festival. Um, uh, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, was, a, was when you had to come back. And, and this was after the, what we call the first diaspora, the first great diaspora. Um, so people from really the Babylonian captivity on, when, a, when a, another force would come and conquer Israel, people, a lot of people would scatter. And they would just go live somewhere else. They would make it out ahead of the conquering army. And these people would kind of bunch up in places and find themselves a synagogue and a rabbi. And, and we find that Paul, when he travels through the book of Acts, no matter what city he went into, even when he gets up into Turkey and, and Greece and around into um, even Rome, he finds synagogues everywhere. Uh, everywhere he goes, he always goes to the synagogue first. And these are people who had been scattered out of Israel um, and then just continued to be Jews and if they were devout, and that's what's interesting, is it actually uses the word devout in our passage. It says devout men from every nation. If you were devout, you traveled back to Israel for the festivals, for um, Pasach, which is Passover, um, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tents or Booths, Tabernacles, and then Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost. <clears throat> and Shavuot um, actually had two purposes. One um, was... Uh, kind of a replaying of Sinai, which we're going to talk about later. But it was also the festival of first fruits. This was the main thing that it was. And we find out um, that, uh, anybody know what Ugarit is? Anybody ever heard of the, the city of Ugarit? You're probably going to hear me talk about it a lot. Ugarit was this uh, ancient um, Hittite uh, port city. And this farmer in 1928 was plowing his field and he hit a rock and he went to dig it up and actually found that it was a tomb. He had uncovered a tomb. And so he called the university, and they came, and they, they basically uncovered a huge city a couple feet under the ground in uh, this guy's farm. And in this city, they found a royal library that was actually made up of a temple library and two um, uh, private libraries. And they found thousands of uh, documents um, on cuneiform writing on tablets uh, in these in these libraries, everything from governmental documents to uh, economic stuff to literary stuff and scholastic stuff and religious texts, and this all dated from about 1600 BC to 1200 BC. And Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt somewhere 141300, and into uh, the period of the Judges was about 1200. So this. All these writings from this Hittite village are quintessentially Canaanite, and they kind of give us a picture of what the culture around that time was. It's, it's hugely important to, to biblical scholars because it tells us what was going on in the world during the Old Testament that kind of shows us where, the, where, where things correspond with the Scripture. And we also get to see places where Israel kind of adopted the cultures around them and places where they drew a line in the sand and said, no, we don't do that. We don't, that's not the way our God works. And we get to see that comparison when we compare the stuff from Ugarit to the stuff to, uh, in the Old Testament. But we find out through Ugarit that there was already a first fruits festival present in Canaan before the Israelites got there. And actually we find it in almost every um, ancient agrarian society. They had this festival where when the very first fruits would ripen, 
they would collect them and take them and have a festival. It was an offering to the God of the harvest so that you would have a good harvest as at the beginning of harvest season. But it was also uh, became a an economic marker. This became a foretelling. Um, and actually, I had to go into the Talmud to find more about this. Because um, in the Talmud, in the book of Bukharim 3.3, it explains how this um, festival happened. And, and what was fascinating was the farmers had a specific way they would come in with the first fruits. And this became so important to their economy that the rabbis started kind of asking them to bring, uh, it was 1 60th of, of what you thought your harvest would be. They wanted you to bring an exact amount so that they could kind of predict what kind of harvest to expect. Um, and so the people would, uh, the farmers would come in, they had a certain way that they would present the fruits and the professionals that lived in the cities would line up. And they had this, uh, in Bakarin, they explained this, this procession where the professionals would ask the farmers, how goes the nation? And it became a way of saying, like, I can make all the money in the world, but if there's no food to buy, I still go hungry. Like, I need to know, how did we do this year? Because it was an agrarian society, and so if you get too disconnected from, from the farming, then you really don't know what's happening. And so this First Fruits Festival became a way of, of predicting the year and saying, what do we have to look forward to? Um, and the farmers would answer by presenting the First Fruits. And if they throw out like a really crummy looking crop, then everybody's like, ooh, and it's just somber experience of it's going to be a tough year. And if they would uh, throw out this big, gorgeous, you know, sheaf of wheat, then everybody would cheer and celebrate. And, and we now know what we have to look forward to. And so the Feast of Weeks became um, a foretelling of what was to come. And Paul actually co-ops this um, in Romans and then in a few more passages where he always said we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, he always referred to the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. And this is this comes from this idea of Shavuot and Pentecost being on Shavuot. And it creates one of the quintessential tensions in the Christian life that we have these awesome things that the Holy Spirit brings into our life. And yet we also have this deep longing when we know there's something better. We know this is just a taste of something better. And so we constantly live with with this tension of, feeling like everything is at our disposal. We have a God who is the God of everything, and yet we also know all we've been given is like one-sixtieth of our inheritance. Like the rest is we're waiting for. The rest is to be harvested. And so our first like revival that this Pentecost experience is throwing back to is Shavuot, and it's saying that the Holy Spirit is an indicator. All these things that happen, the signs, the wonders, the miraculous things that happen here are just an indicator of what's to come and what we really have to look forward to. And we can never lose that tension. If we ever forget that we have the Holy Spirit, we have the very power of God in our lives, shame on us. You know, if we ever look at the world and we feel hopeless and helpless and that there's nothing that can be done and it's out of control, shame on us. We have the Holy Spirit. Like we, We're telling a story about a small church of nobodies literally changing history. But at the same time, if we ever feel like like this is it and we've we're, we're here and we're and it's all done and there's nothing more to look forward to shame on us we can't do that either we have to understand that even when awesome things happen and this is something that's always bothered me in the raising of Lazarus um, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead is Lazarus still died again like like <laughs> Like, and we don't really get to hear his story. It might have been, like, what happens if Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and he goes out 
a week later and gets hit by a bus. Like, it, like that, and that explains the tension we live in. We live with all this power, and yet we still die. Like, and death is still among us, and, and we still struggle in this tension. It's because we've only been given the first fruits. We've only been given the 60th of the harvest. All, like, all we have is almost a taste, an indicator of what we have to look forward to. So that's our first revival. Our second revival is Sinai. And this is a big one. It's in the imagery, and we cannot miss this. This is, a, this is almost a replaying. Sinai, um, go to the next one. <coughs> Sinai was the very first Shavuot. Man, somebody is not happy out there. Can you guys hear that? Whew. Sinai is the first Shavuot. This happens 50 days after uh, the first Passover. So in the very first Passover, when the destroyer came, the children of Israel sacrificed the goat. They put the blood on the doorpost, and the destroyer would pass over their house. Pharaoh leads, uh, releases them. Um, they run. They have the Red Sea adventure, and they immediately settle at the foot of Sinai. And um, this happens one Pentecost, or 50 days after the uh, the first Passover. And so this kind of creates the, the weeks, the festival of weeks, of when, exactly when they're going to have it. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So some of the imagery that exists here, the first one is in the preparation. What we see, we see in both stories this kind of uh, preparing. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. So he like prepares them ahead of time and lets them know this is coming. This isn't something that just sneaks up on them. And then we get to the book of Acts, and it says, being assembled together, he commanded them to depart from Jerusalem, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. So we've got this kind of preparatory anticipation in both stories that kind of sets it up. The next real imagery is in the fire. This is a huge one. It says that Mount Sinai was, complete, was uh, completely in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Its smoke ascended uh, like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. In the book of Acts, they're up in an upper room, it says. And it says, And there appeared on each of them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. So we've got this uh, fire that shows up. There's even actually kind of a parallel on what happens as they come down. When Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is like shining, and the people can't look at it. They want him to veil it. And when the apostles come down out of the upper room, you know, the crowd hears them come down, they're like, are you guys drunk? What's happening? There's a little bit of a parallel there, but the similarities actually, um, what's most powerful about them is that they accentuate the differences, and the differences are what's really key here in this revival. Remember when we have a revival, we go back to the original, and then we bring it up and make it um, fit our time. And the first one is, uh, is in the kind of the separation. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, no, the third, I'm sorry, the third image is in the noise. Um, it says, There came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. That word thunderings is the exact same Hebrew word as sound. It's normally translated voice in the Old Testament. 90% of the time or something is translated voice of a trumpet and, a, and that was very loud. So all the people in the camp trembled. Um, and in the upper room, it says, normally we think of a wind blowing through the upper room, but it never actually says a wind does. It just says the sound of a wind. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as, a, as of a mighty rushing wind, and the whole house um, was filled where they were sitting. So we've got this fire. First we've got this preparation, then we've got this fire and this loud noise that exists in both these situations. 
And then we get to the differences. Let's go to the next slide. It says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings and lightnings, flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. In the upper room, we hear that the tongues, uh, or that the fire divided like tongues of fire on each and every one of them. And so we see this separation. We're on the first, uh, the first Pentecost. They had to pick a representative. This kind of creates the priestly line where they didn't want direct contact with God. They wanted Moses to kind of represent them and then come back and tell them what God had said. And Moses does. He actually comes back with the Ten Commandments. He comes back with the tablets when he comes down from Sinai. And in the upper room, it was different. There was no representative. Now they each had fire on each one of them. It was individual. And the, the major difference we see here in this Pentecost is that it's, a, it's almost a disappearing of this priestly separation from God that we used to have to have a kind of a representative to people who were afraid to approach God directly. That doesn't exist anymore. Jeremiah actually talks about it. I think I've got the passage. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers <clears throat> in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. See, that's... that's uh, Exodus 20 right there uh, my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them says the Lord but this this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall know me <clears throat> from the least to the greatest says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. So he even says he's going to separate the need to say, you go talk to God and come back and teach me. And so the major difference that exists in this Pentecost over the first Pentecost is this breakdown of that priestly separation that no longer exists. God fell on each one individually. And I think, that's, I think we're supposed to catch that. That's supposed to be key because the imagery is so similar to Sinai. Our third revival... And this is, a, this is a big one that I love. is a revival of Babel. And this is another one where the imagery just kind of takes us there. It just kind of leads us there. Babel uh, is from uh, Genesis um, 11. Let's put those uh, separations up. And if we go to the very beginning of Genesis 11, the first words are now the whole earth had one language and one speech. The very first words of Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one accord in one place. Like I think this unity that exists in both these stories is big, and especially the fact that language is so key, that we have two stories that, that the kind of one of the primary images that we're talking about is language, and, and we start out with this idea of, of one accord, this oneness. Let's go to the next slide. One more. <clears throat> and here's the big thing about language, is in Babel, we've got these people who... Um, who are trying to make a name for themselves. It says, come, let us uh, build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And then in Acts, it says, uh, if, we, if, we, if we read forward, um, the, the people uh, were hearing, no matter what they were saying, they were hearing them in their own language. We got all these people just from different places. And the thing they marveled about, they didn't say anything about fire. They didn't say anything about wind. They didn't say anything about the noise that was going on. They said, what is happening that we can all hear in our own language. 
And, and if you listen to what they said, they said, what we're hearing is the mighty works of God. We're hearing the mighty works of God. And so what we see is a, is a huge change in the focus of the people. We see these people in Babel who are self-focused. They're thinking, let us make a name for ourselves. And God's response was division. He separated the people. He split the languages. And what's ironic is when we get to Acts, the very first kind of miracle we see show up is a rejoining of language. We see God pulling languages back together. <clears throat> and what's interesting is if you, if you read um, Genesis um, 11, where this is happening, the very first, the very, so it goes, the story of Babel, he scatters the people. The very next chunk is the genealogy from Shem to Abram. It's just kind of Shem had such and such, he had such and such, one of those chunks that goes straight to Abram. The very next chapter, the very first words are, and God called Abram and said, leave your father's house. So it's almost like Babel happens, and then it's straight to Abram. Like God, something happened in the human heart at the Tower of Babel that made God say, I'm going to work through this one group. This is, my, this is now my focus. I'm going to work through this one group of people, and they're going to be my people. And then something happens after Jesus, after the cross, when the Holy Spirit falls, that he immediately puts that back together. The very first thing he does is put the language back together. And there's no way we're supposed to miss this. We've got two passages in all the scripture that focus this hard on language. We've got one where God is splitting them and one where he's putting them back together. And I think the main focus, the main revival that's happening here in the book of Acts is this drawing together of people, this putting back together. Like, and, and this is going to be a major theme in the book of Acts. This is going to be something huge. And it actually hits the apostles like a shock. Like they're not ready for it when the Gentiles first come to Jesus. They're not prepared for it. It kind of surprises them. They thought this was going to stay a Jewish thing. And I think what we learn here is in this passage, especially if you go back to Babel and Abraham, is this was not a plan B. The Gentiles were never a plan B. The, the putting together of, the, of all peoples was never a plan B. This was God's plan from the beginning. This is, this is something that got broken at Babel, and God has been putting Babel back together ever since, and it starts here in the upper room. So what comes of this? What is our... Oh, yeah. Um, this is one of the very first things when Abraham, right after um, God calls him, this is the Abrahamic blessing. Um, when he says, I'm going to bless her when he blesses you, blah, 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 and all the nations through your seed or through Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Right after splitting everybody up, God is already giving prophecies of bringing everybody back together. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. That's we see the first sign of it here in the upper room when God starts putting languages back together. So what's the end game? So what, you know, we because we focus so much on this first half of Acts, and really my focus is always the latter half. It says, and with many other words, Peter preaches his sermon and a bunch of people get saved. And actually, what's ironic is it says 3,000 people got saved, and most of them left. Historically, we know that after everybody goes home from this, from this uh, Pentecost festival, from this pilgrimage festival, um, Acts was left with a relatively small church. I mean, Jerusalem was. Jerusalem had the, the smallest church um, pretty quickly. We know that most likely the Roman church that, that Paul was writing to in the book of Romans were people that got saved right here 
and something impacted them heavy enough that they went back to Rome and took and just started a church in Rome. We don't have any historical evidence whatsoever of a missionary making it to Rome to start the Roman church. There's nothing in any of the histories or in the scripture. So we have to just assume some of these folks, because it says there were people from Rome at, the, uh, at Pentecost, um, we have to assume that something in Peter's message was impactful enough and, and had enough substance to it that they were able to go back to Rome and start a church. But, um, but here's what it says about the first church. It says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came on every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, and anyone, to anyone who had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the passage. Like You can define church a lot of ways. And you can. there's a lot of different styles of churches. There's a lot of different denominations. There's a lot of different expressions. Um, but ultimately, to me, this is church. And, and any time we look at church and say, what elements do we need? Like, what, what needs to be in our church? I think this is the list. Go on to the next slide. The people being baptized. There's a, there's a steadfast living, a faithful living. And this is huge. Like, we all know the difference of when you go to church, um, and, and you go regularly, and it's your church. And then those times when you go to church, and like throughout the week you're thinking about church, and you're excited to go, and it's impacting your life. And there's like a steadfastness to your to your faith. You guys know what I'm talking about, that difference between when you're just kind of on cruise control and when there's like a, a faithfulness and a steadfastness in your heart. That And that's, so we see an outbreak of just the steadfast living, this kind of devoted living. They were devoted to doctrine, to fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, signs and wonders, sharing, worship. This is church. This is what it's about. And this is what we focus on. And, and these are the things that we'll dig into. And these are the things we're going to make sure are always here. And this is where we get it from this book that the church for the last hundred years has been fascinated by and really been enamored with. And to me, this is where, and, and if, it, if that means big signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and crazy, I'm okay with that because that's what God wants to do. If it means sitting here and studying the scripture together quietly and, and singing worship songs, I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. As long as that's what we got. As long as there's people getting baptized. And we're living steadfastly, and we're focused on doctrine, and we're fellowshipping one another, and we're breaking bread, both at the table and in meals, and we're praying together, we're praying for each other, and God's answering our prayers, and we're sharing with each other, and we're worshiping God together. What else do we need? So in our time of response, normally 
on Pentecost every year, this will be our uh, kind of our membership Sunday, and we'll have like a we'll have a book and we'll kind of sign our name to it, and it it, it doesn't change anything. Like you don't get like a special parking if you're a member or anything. Like it's just a chance to say I'm in, you know I'm this is, these are my people, and we'll make a ceremony out of it. I didn't think we should this year. I thought it was a little too early. Wanted to let everybody get to know us a little bit, but. Pentecost will be our membership Sunday. This will be our chance to, to say, is this what I want to be a part of? Am I committed to this? So in your hearts, as, as, we, uh, as we go to the table today, I just want you to think on that question. Are these my people? Is this what I'm committed to? Is this what I'm a part of? And, uh, and I hope you say yes. And if not, if, if that's not where you're at, then I sure hope you'll find some place. And if open table's not it, that's fine. Um, we're, we're certainly not the only church. We're just the best. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh,